Welcome to Mistakes Were Made, a podcast about non-monogamy for messy people like us. I'm Sarah, a queer therapist, writer, parent, and journalist. And I'm Sarah's husband, Alex, a communications professional and educator. And I'm Jessica, resident monogamist and podcast producer. Today is our season two finale. And we have sound effects. Um, and today's episode, uh, we're doing uh, polyamory mythbusters. So we're gonna uh, talk about some common misconceptions about non-monogamy. Uh, we're gonna things... put some Mentos into Coke bottles. <laughs> we're gonna <laughs> yeah. we're gonna blow up a car, and uh, we're gonna talk about things, uh, misconceptions, uh, perceptions about non-monogamy, things that might be making you feel like you're weird or bad or like you aren't good at it. And we're gonna bust them shit. Bust them. <laughs> we're gonna bust them. We need a. Busted sound effect. Yeah, we have two sound effects. Sad trombone and ding, 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 ding. And uh, yeah, but before we dive into that, you're going to be hearing a lot of those sounds. Probably that's going to be the bulk of the podcast. So if you don't like it, just you can just tune out right the fuck now. You know, it took us all the way to the end of season two for me to finally convince you all to have podcast like live sound effects uh -huh. on the podcast yeah. so i have arrived right. next season we'll be back we'll be back next season with a huge sound that, effects board each one of us has our own yeah. sound uh -huh. effects board <laughs> yeah um but before we dive into the myths and bust them uh we have a few housekeeping items uh but housekeeping sounds boring so let's call them exciting updates Exciting from the world updates. of mistakes were made. Uh, okay, update number one. Headline, episode, upload, kerfuffle. Yeah, talk about mistakes were made. Oh. I made a mistake. I uploaded and... <laughs> and that, this is how I've been feeling ever since this happened. Sad trombone. I uploaded an early draft of last week's, our last episode. And so the top had been edited but there's a large section in the middle where my husband's caregiver was out on the sidewalk <laughs> and I had to go out there and bring groceries inside and manage the whole situation <laughs> so we were on a little break so there's some behind the scenes sound in there so if your podcast app downloaded the episode right away you might have that old version just undownload redownload before you listen or stream the episode the cleaned up one is there I feel like you're making people want to hear that yeah. additional content. <laughs> you, you will get 15 solid minutes of Mads, Zach, Alex, and I looking out the window, just uh -huh. being like, what's going on? Was that an accident? No, I think that's supposed to be yeah. happening. That's a lot oh, of Oh, yeah, groceries. we're like talking about Jessica's body language and stuff. <laughs> anyway, okay, now we're doing it again, you guys, so we should Sorry. probably focus up. Uh, but thank you to the listeners who let us know about that. Um, it will never happen again. We've docked Jessica's pay by 50% for the last episode, so... <laughs> Uh, but also, it's totally okay. Ooh. Everybody makes mistakes, and that is a very easy mistake to make. And as we talk about all the time on the show, perfect is boring. Yeah. Mm. Fuck perfect. Um, yay! Speaking of imperfect things, uh, we've been meeting for like weeks, episode after episode, we forget to plug. Uh, Sarah and I are in a band called Bloodstar, and we just released an EP, and it's sort of, would you say it's like, uh, it's like related, kind of? What do you think, Sarah? I mean, it is poly, queer, alt country. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, absolutely. It's about heartache 
and crushing and sex and being sex. sex. <laughs> and, That's how they call it now in the country. Out in the country. <laughs> and just, you know, loving people in all mm-hmm. kinds of weird ways. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I would say it's related. Mm-hmm. And uh, the I'm one of the singers and the other singer is somebody that Sarah dated. Mm-hmm. That's well. right. Um, so you and can it's see, really good. It's oh yeah. People people say it's good. A lot of people are saying how good it is. Uh, it's Bloodstar with no space. It's on Spotify and Apple Music and shit. Uh, if you do Bloodstar with a space, Blood Space Star, then you will hear a metal band that's pretty pretty sick as well. Also good. Yeah, might be poly affirming metal. Are they I'm not sure. I don't know. Probably most metalheads are. We'll get to that later. Um, and Sarah, you wanted to uh, circle back to the episode where we talked about consent in the three-minute game. What was the title of that episode? I can't even remember exactly, but um, desire. Oh, owning Own- your desire. Yeah, owning your desire. Yeah, yeah, that is an episode that I certainly have had a lot of really interesting conversations with folks about over the weeks and months since we did it. And in that episode where we were kind of talking about our own relationship to desire and what we learn about it or struggle with it in regards to polyamory and queerness, you and I talked a fair amount about the three-minute game, Betty Martin's, uh, it's like a interpersonal therapeutic kind of like sex positive game where you get the chance to talk about what you desire to do to people, what you have desire to have done to you. Uh, and you and I explored the ways in which that has worked well for us and the ways in which it's been kind of a struggle. Um, and I got some really great listener feedback, listener slash crush feedback. Uh, and she mentioned that actually, Betty Martin suggests that if you're with a new partner or really intending to do it for like therapeutic exploratory purposes first, that the three minute game should have body parts limited to the elbow down. And Mm. I think the way you and I had been talking about it throughout the episode uh, was the idea that like, well, you know, any and all parts of the body or acts would be on the table. And we were kind of spent some time talking about how, that feels like a big sort of um, vulnerability ask of people. Yeah. And we kind of like never resolved that. We sort of like, we're talking about it and thinking about it, but left it there. So yeah. this it's, listener was like, hey, that this is actually like a way you can do it that addresses that. Yeah, I think mm. it takes a baseline of trust to do like it in a fully, like full body sexual situation. When you say elbow down, you mean like for, hands and forearms. Yes, I, that was my impression. When I, yes. <laughs> Not when I hear elbow to the down, ground. like just keep it below the waist. <laughs> <laughs> would be a different version different of it. There, could be cool. I don't know. Um, so anyway, I <laughs> I feel like I find it's less than <laughs> when it's just foot stuff, you know. Just pure whatever. Just <laughs> foot and knee. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anyway, I thought I'd mention that. I thought it was great feedback. I love when we hear back from listeners about, you know, what they know about topics that we've covered or things that we got wrong or might add add yeah. in. Uh, and I also thought it was just like a cool addendum yeah. to that episode. Huh. I'm Mike. We're the experts. Don't question us. How we're here. dare you? <laughs> we're here to tell you what the fuck is what. 
And we don't want to know what you think. We read two websites and a Wikipedia page about that. and For sure. Actually, that episode, I, like, have talked to a lot of people about it as well. And I'm always like, we really fucked shit the bed on explaining that game. So, whatever. It's fine. Uh, Mistakes were made. We can't all be perfect, as is the theme of this episode. Speaking of experts today we are going to dig into uh facts and falsehoods about non-monogamy um and uh we're gonna try and gamify this a little bit um so uh we are gonna talk about some of the misconceptions we've done a bunch of exhaustive research (laughs) We spent time on we Instagram. Spent, yeah. <laughs> okay. Sarah's research is all from Instagram. I read some academic, skimmed some academic papers, um, and half of them had stuff about statistics that I didn't understand and was like standard deviation. I was like, what? Close. Um, I'm gonna. I really wish I'd taken a statistics class. You went to mm-hmm. business school. Did you ever yeah. take a statistics? Yeah, class? I okay. hate stats. I okay. was just talking about um, that yesterday. But I took a statistics class. Oh yeah. For you use it all the time in your therapy practice, I'm sure. Sarah, what does standard deviation mean? (laughs) So anyway, about that statistics class, uh, I took it pass fail. (laughs) Standard deviation is like how kinky you are, right? Like how deviant you are. The standard standard deviation in any given situation. I'd like to think I'm well beyond the standard deviation. Um, Okay, so should we dive right in? Let's do it. Who wants to go first? I think you should maybe go first because okay. this game is your vision. Okay. And then you can <laughs> okay. set the scene. Set the scene. Okay, so um, don't overuse the dinger, okay? <gasps> Respect okay. the dinger. I don't know if this has come up yet in the podcast, but Alex has a Capricorn moon, oh. and I feel like it's going to be on display here. <laughs> a beautiful, <Okay. laughs> full-bodied display. Um, yeah, it probably is. Uh, okay, so my first topic uh, is about... Um, I'm going to dive right into stigmas about uh, polyamory and non-monogamy in general. And I want to ask the two of you, what percentage of millennials, so we're talking about just millennials here, Hmm. think that committed couples should be monogamous? Mm. Okay. And you think about your answer. Yes. Okay. Can I ask a few questions, clarifying questions yes, about yes. millennials? Yeah. Mm-hmm. This would oh, be okay. folks <laughs> who are like 30 and above at this point. 30 and above. Well, okay. This study did not have anybody younger than millennials. So I have no idea what that means, but there was, <laughs> for some but reason, I, studies like this are like, for people who are from the silent generation, AKA people 80. <laughs> <laughs> Also, Wait, millennials are the youngest people. They, they were have? the youngest people in the survey. Yeah, oh. but I don't think that meant that they're counting. They probably just didn't survey people younger than probably twenty-five. Twenty-five. And then, let's say millennials. Because, like, in a lot of these generational things, like we're technically elder millennials. Yeah, like the oldest millennials. possible millennials are yeah. the youngest. I would just think about people your age and a little bit younger. Okay. Hmm. 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 So, what percentage? Don't think- overthink it. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> That's my official feeling about someone saying don't overthink it to me. (laughs) My favorite thing to do is overthinking things. Okay, so what percentage think that committed couples should be monogamous? Yes, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they they somewhat agreed with the statement. I'm going to say 65%. Yeah, I'm going to go with like 80. Mm, Okay, I don't know how to use the... Dinger for two people. <laughs> for two people. But, uh, yeah, um, you were spot on, Sarah. 63%. Huh. 
No shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. She's an expert. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that's, uh, and then I guess you might imagine for older generations, that number was even higher. So um, this was from a study by the, uh, let me see, the Institute for Family Studies, which if the name doesn't start mm-hmm. to kind of give it away, is uh, clearly a very like sort of like family oriented, um, probably sort of like conservative uh think tank thing but the research is like clean you know but i think the framing of a question like somewhat agree that committed couples should be there's some leading stuff inside mm-hmm. of that framing in that question maybe but still seems like it's about right um but that's interesting i mean i obviously i guessed much higher than you did sarah and probably you have a better sense of this than i do maybe because you're an expert but like yeah i it's surprising to me like that i would definitely think like younger even younger than millennials would have like a much higher tolerance for it but i definitely think of people like around our age and older as having close to zero tolerance right for non-monogamy so you know this is where i fly in with like my clarifying questions about this Mm. yeah i'm curious if they are talking about like cheating or ethical uh, good question. Yeah, the, the the question is, and it does say that committed couples should be monogamous, so it doesn't say, yeah. Um, should be, it's like, there yeah. might be a kind of, I'm reading between the lines there, and part of what I hear is an acceptance that there's a certain amount of infidelity that is happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not necessarily hearing there's more than half of a generation that thinks that ethical non-monogamy is a totally normal Okay. relationship structure but yeah. The, yeah. I, i'd be curious to know okay mm-hmm. follow-up question mm-hmm. or fo- yeah uh so for all age groups not just millennials um but i assume people 18 and over probably um this is from another study from the kinsey institute uh for people who aren't personally interested in polyamory themselves so people will say it's not for me what percent do you think say that they respect people who do it hmm. i'm gonna let jessica answer this one let's see okay they say not for me. Yeah. But maybe okay for you. We're debating how many of them say it's okay for yeah. you mm-hmm. to do it. Yep. Um, They're not like I don't, you. Yeah. I don't know. I think most people are like you. Mm-hmm. I, would, I would say pretty high you levels. Yeah. You so, know? So I'm like in the 85, 90% 85, 90% you. of you. Yeah. So the people who say that they do respect people would be like 15. Yeah. Or, oh, oh yeah. wow. Uh-huh. One in seven people. Judgy. And again, these are people who say they're not personally <laughs> That's interested. That's interesting, yeah. Uh, and uh, we can get into the person who's personally interested later. But of the people who say they're not, yeah, all of the vast majority are pretty judgmental, like, or like pretty much like not, not cool, 85%. What's y'all's take on that? Like, when you just are thinking about like broad frameworks for why, where someone's mm. head is, if they're like, this isn't for me, and now they're considering it for someone else entirely, mm-hmm. not for themselves. Oh. Fear, 100% yeah. fear. Tell more. Like, I think that it feels threatening to their own, like, what, like, fragile feeling partnerships. It's like, wait a minute, I thought I had, like, locked this down, and I just, like, took care of the whole, like, you know, life partner thing. And I don't want to ever have to think about it again. <laughs> yeah. That's I, what it says to me. Totally. So 
all week in my practice and kind of just in life, I have had this kind of theme going on, which is you'll hear someone say something or kind of a statistic like this or whatever, and you'll be like, who's that talking? Mm. Right? Who's that mm-hmm. talking? And when I hear that, I'm like, oh, that's Puritanism. Mm-hmm. Because that is like the, no, it's not just about what's right for me. It's about what is okay for everyone else. Mm, And I think when we're in the realm of sex and like bodily autonomy and choices, I mean, we certainly have this on display flagrantly in our culture right now with what's been going on with reproductive justice. Um, It's just like, no, this doesn't end with what's right or wrong for me. Mm -hmm. I also really have to know what you are allowed or not allowed to do. What do you think the number would be for, I don't have it in front of me, but like for uh, respect people who are in homosexual relationships? It's Mm -hmm. probably like 50. I feel like I've seen surveys of like Americans, like approval of like gay marriage, right? That's beyond just, I respect that relationship. Like, but I think that they should, people should be able to get married. That's like above 50% in this country. So it's kind of interesting that like, that says to me that there's a cultural normalization that has happened for things like gay marriage that and homosexuality that has not happened for polyamory or non-monogamy. Hmm. I mean, yeah. and then I'm like, who's talking? Capitalism. Mm. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, I guess what I... How I'm, dare you? <laughs> capitalism. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I think, you know, we've covered this on uh, the show quite a bit, but this idea that, like, one of the most successful ways that gay marriage has been, like, more mainstream accepted is for it to be... Uh, for it to be absorbed by capitalist values to like show couples having traditional weddings and buying houses Mm -hmm. and lots of cars and like, look, they're just like us. Um, And so I guess there's like a part of me that is curious. I mean, capitalism is very good at this. Like could capitalism take polyamory Mm -hmm. and Mm. build an arc that supports it out of out of that practice, and mm-hmm. is that what would be required for the ick factor to go down for people? I'm like kind of down a weird road here, mm. but yeah, I mean, I feel like it would just be like more representation in media and culture too. Mm. Yes, that definitely yeah. also is mm-hmm. important. Mm-hmm. Okay, should we go mm-hmm. on to the next one? Yes, yeah. I'm ready. Okay, so. This one I'm going to put out. I'm actually going to choose which one of you I'm asking, if that's okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, for the sake of the sound effects. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so, Jessica, this is a survey uh, about whether or not your sexual relationship with your long-term partner has changed after opening up. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to, mm-hmm. the first part of this question will be true or false. What did respondents who were polyamorous say uh, in answering this question, has your sexual relationship with long-term partner changed after opening up? Mm. I mean, I would say definitely. Just because, like, you know, having sex with a new person, like, there are some things that are the same, but it's always, there's always something that is different. So I have to imagine that you're going out there, having sex with a new person, and bringing whatever you learned back home. Yay. Yes, correct. Yeah. So overwhelmingly respondents answered that that was true. I think to the tune of about 75-ish percent. Um, the follow-up question that I have there is among those folks 
Yes, Alex? No, I'm just reading the thing. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Oh, so you're cheating. No, I... <laughs> I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> I was spaced out when you were asking the questions. I was trying to catch up. Um, among those folks who answered, 75% answered, yes, it has changed. Would you say the majority have said that the sexual relationship with their long-term partner has changed for the better, for the worse, stayed neutral? Hmm. I mean... <laughs> Um, so, okay, let's think through these different options, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think, God, I, (laughs) I'm going to start from the bottom and work my way up. So, I mean, stayed neutral, like that doesn't align with the first part of the question, right? Because we established that it changed. Um, and I think like, it would make me really sad to think of it getting worse. <laughs> maybe it would mean mm. that like monogamy, non-monogamy wasn't really like, the, there's maybe some other issues going on. Um, but also full disclosure, I think I remember you guys talking about this on an earlier podcast episode. So I'm going to go with it changed for the better. Yep. Yay. Wow. So, what percentage said that? Uh, it was... So the the statistics aren't going to like perfectly align because I parsed the question for dramatic effect, but essentially thirty seven percent of respondents said yes, it has changed and it's gotten better, mm-hmm. um, and then ten percent said yes, we're now into group play. Twenty five percent said yes, we've stopped having sex together, and that so that's like yes, it's changed and we've stopped having okay, sex together. And then 27% said, no, it has not changed. It's about the same as it's always been. Huh. So it's either neutral or then about half the people are like, uh, it's better because of these kind of po- two possible different scenarios. And then some people are like, we just don't have sex with each other anymore. Which is interesting because like that is not necessarily worse a negative outcome. Right. Yeah, it might be that you were you know, sexually incompatible in some way and you figured out how to take that part of your relationship elsewhere and um, more power to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. so what is the myth buster here? I'm kind of curious. I want to ask both of you, like, what would be your assumptions about this maybe before we opened up, Alex, or before, Jessica, you were producing a podcast about non-monogamy? <laughs> um, and, and what's, like, the arc of... Having a different I mean, understanding. that your sex life, I feel like of the, the people from the previous question who are like you, mm-hmm. that's not good. It would be that you're going to, it's going to harm your sex life with your primary partner because you're going to be getting it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's just like consistent depictions of like people, you know, cheating on their primary partner, say, and like the, the person being cheated on like imagining the sex that their partner is having and it's like the most amazing sex in the entire we world that anyone we has ever had right like yeah it's like satin sheets like yeah. people just like manicured nails from the 80s just like gripping satin saxophones sheets saxophones playing in the background <laughs> like flower petals just like shrinking down on wow. candles we're really showing our age here our sexual awakenings were both we're in 1989 okay, so that was one hundred percent lady in red for anyone yeah, who remembers yeah, right. that movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's it's interesting. I, I was curious what you would say about that, Alex. So, what were your kind of assumptions about that before we opened up? How have they changed? Mm, what do you think? My assumptions about what how it would impact our sex life. Mm-hmm. I can't say that I did, <laughs> didn't well, even consider. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, no, I'm trying to think if, I mean, I'm serious, I guess. Like, I don't, I don't remember being like that being one of the impact. I guess I assumed that our sex life would stay the same or improve because like our, I, I didn't feel like our reason for opening our marriage was really like sexual. It wasn't about like sex between us and like, you know, problems in that realm or something like that. It was probably just, um, yeah, unrelated to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What were you going to say, Jess? Well, I was just going to say, like, if we follow that sort of, like, script or stereotype, the lady in red situation, like, you know, the idea is supposed to be that then, like, the partner is, like, getting this amazing rose petal covered sex elsewhere Mm -hmm. and then coming home and being like, ugh, like, my, you know, my partner is boring. Right. Right? (laughs) Rather than actually, like, in practice, it seems like. They're like, ooh, maybe I'm going to bring home some set and sheets. Right. <laughs> These cotton sheets. Why don't we, why don't we have that? That's what our problem yeah. is. <laughs> why don't we put a mirror on the ceiling like my girlfriend has? Um, that's, uh, that's interesting. I feel like that's another kind of like cliche or it's like a yeah. little bit deeper down the road uh, stereotype or like idea that you're like, I learned some moves from <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> or whatever. And then like it spiced up my sex life, which I guess is like, maybe that's valid, but I feel like what the, the actual truth there is probably something along the lines of, um, Oh boy, Sarah's trying to just sad trombone me. This is, this is very distracting. Okay. So what you were saying is that There's maybe the trope, the trope of, I learned a new move out in the world and I'm bringing it back to sex up my, yeah. Sex up my spice life. Right. Sex up my spice life. Uh, yeah. And what's actually probably more happening is like you're thinking more critically about your sexual relationship with your primary partner because you're having uh, sex with other people. And so it's like, you know, I don't think it's actually about like the physical things that you do necessarily. It could be about that, but it's probably more about like intentionality. And like if you're in a long term monogamous relationship, you probably get into like patterns of the ways that you have sex and your orientation to it and like whether it feels, you know, exciting and like how you do it and what are the dynamics between wanting to and not wanting to and going elsewhere and having sex with other people is like kind of inevitably going to impact that in various different ways. And probably for us up front, we probably did a lot of like internal, like competitive stuff. And we're like, oh, you know, I know I was like, oh, Sarah's like sleeping with somebody else. So like when we sleep together, I'm going to like try and bring it. <laughs> you know, cute. Try and bring my A game. Sweet. That's very cute. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I so. You didn't do that? No, I know what you mean. Yeah. Uh, but I think. In a way, the framing that I would put on it was just suddenly I recognized like how valuable and special having sex with you was. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's probably the way I would say it. Like, right. Suddenly, it wasn't just like, well, we are the two people that get to have sex with each other in this scenario. <laughs> um, it was like challenging and exciting and made a lot of sense that Mm -hmm. there were other people out there that wanted to have sex with you and were enjoying having sex with you. And it made me, I think, freshened up my understanding of just like what a wonderful partner you are. Yeah. That's sweet. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That makes, I, I agree. That is like, um, I think the realm of fantasy, sex with other people 
can often be in a realm of it is by definition maybe in the realm of fantasy when you're in a monogamous relationship right and like fantasy and reality are typically very different so you might think like this is how it will be satin sheets rose petals yada yada tremendous orgasms um that shake the earth and, <laughs> uh volcanoes and uh and tsunamis and and such natural <laughs> what disasters. 80s movie is this i think it's like a, bunch, a series of disaster movies oh okay <laughs> <laughs> you're like anyway. that i happened to be watching as i was going yeah, through puberty yeah, exactly um but then like what it actually is like yeah it might make you appreciate much it's just i would say it's just as likely to make you appreciate sex with your primary partner because it's hard to like you don't have the intimacy, the trust, all of that stuff that you've maybe learned to take for granted, come to take for granted with your primary partner. And then, like, you go out and, like, have these experiences that, like, let's be real. Going out and fucking other people is not likely to be, like, a mind-blowingly fun experience out the gate. Mm-hmm. Right. And I feel like I've heard this pretty consistently that, like, you know, you will get out there and, like, it will be... Uh, hard, you will feel unsafe, you will feel uncomfortable. Um, I feel like most men that I've talked to who like will disclose this level of stuff will have like some kind of uh, like problems performing with a new person the first time, like when they first, if they've been sleeping with only their wife or primary partner for years and then like try to go sleep with somebody else, like I think that's super common, is not it's not blowing anybody's mind at least right at first probably what do you think i think that's true for most people um i i think it really can depend and i'm sort of drawing on my therapeutic practice and experience that it really depends where and how people feel safe and what kind of challenges around intimacy they might have and for some people um like really being present to the sexual experience is actually a little bit easier mm-hmm. if there isn't a lot of emotional intimacy or relational intimacy. Mm. Um, and for some people it's the opposite. And for some people it depends. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that all kind of points to your conclusion here, which is to say like there is a really strong narrative in our culture that whatever sex you're having is not the great sex that other people are having. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I have been thinking about that so much this week, actually, interpersonally and in my practice. Because you've been having amazing sex. Because <laughs> finally I've been having the cinematic sex that you all wish you were having. Um, <laughs> no, I, and I really, it's got me wondering why. Like, what is that about the culture that we live in um, and the way we think about sex and our relationships that there is always this sense that you're doing it wrong yeah. or the great sex is just out of reach or that like other people are having great sex or your partner's having great sex with other people. You know, yeah. there's like some yeah. mm-hmm. just like in, I keep coming up with the term FOMO. It's just yeah, like yeah. FOMO yeah. is just so it's present. FOMO and it's like yeah. that, that best questing, question for the best. Best mm-hmm. question. Always like feeling mm-hmm. like, like all of our culture is like basically always like things could be better. Right. Someone's getting right. something and better people, than you. Like right? sort of, uh, um, almost like weaponize the idea that they're having the best mm-hmm. of something. Right. Yeah. I agree mm-hmm. with that. It 
It's going to be annoying if I say that this is capitalism again. Ooh, is that going to be annoying? No, I love that. <laughs> no, I'm here for it. it totally is. <laughs> right. But, I mean, I, I just come back to the idea of scarcity and competition and mm. the isolation that that instills in inside of us. Like this sense mm-hmm. that we are always maybe missing out always maybe not as good as someone else always maybe you know like mm-hmm. it's just this constant insecurity mm-hmm. um, that's just yeah. sort of roiling well and plus porn i mean which yeah. is related mm-hmm. to capitalism but like mm-hmm. yeah if you're you know your exposure to fantasy sex is through porn most porn is like i feel like there's not very much porn where people like are like oh that was okay <laughs> i didn't come but you know it's cool but i <laughs> Right. I'm really appreciating getting to know you better. He <laughs> <laughs> said, really, maybe. Should we go get some, point. like, not the best tacos in town, yeah. but maybe just, like, some okay Second ones? best tacos. <laughs> right. <laughs> Abortive sex and average tacos. Um, but there is something beautiful about that. Yeah. I mean, like, that's, mm-hmm. that's humanity mm-hmm. right there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so, like, you know, depictions usually depict, like, some sort of supreme superlative thing, right? Um, it's a better story or is more appealing so you're gonna be you're gonna assume that everything everybody's having something better the FOMO thing like you're talking about which keeps us from each other like there I do really Mm -hmm. think that this is the way like these oppressive systems get internalized and keep us from intimacy with other people uh is that that sense of of competition of scarce resources the idea that opening up your relationship and your partner having sex with other people would immediately mean that your sex was bad or mm. not good enough or would get worse. Mm-hmm. Also, it's just like straight scarcity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But there's very fixed amount of intimacy, of love, of joy, of pleasure, and it's going to get spent somewhere else. Right. Uh, and I struggle with this. So I want to say, like, I am not an exception to that rule. Um, but it is something I've been mm. thinking about a lot. Yeah. But, and I think I've heard you guys say, and Madeline and Zach were talking about this last week too, like, and this is what I think is unexpected that, like, seeing other people finding your partner attractive, like how great is that? Right. And helps you like appreciate your partner in a new way. Like you were just saying, Mm -hmm. but that's not part of the narrative, like the dominant narrative about this. And if I could segue back to what you were saying in the first myth that we busted, or Uh when we were talking about like what percentage of people think that polyamory is icky and the percentage was high, it was like 80%. And you were like, but 50% of the population says that homosexuality is fine Mm. for others, whether or not it's fine for me, for one. Uh, I am coming back to this because I think it's, mm, there's some important distinction here around homosexuality and queerness. Uh, Mm -hmm. And like, if Mm. you were to ask the majority of the population, like, how do you feel about people being queer? Or even if you didn't use that word, but you were like, people in all of these non-traditional relationships, you know, whether they're like non-binary or trans or, you know, I think that number of acceptance would go down um, for homosexuality. Mm -hmm. And that feels kind of worth saying to me because uh, I think the more we are kind of challenging norms around like how we live and these ideas of scarcity and like, being in non-traditional community with each other, the higher the the ick factor is for the culture at large. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. That might be a tangent, but yeah. I just thought of it. That's interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I also think that 
last statistic about like the approval or the ick factor like uh people are probably a lot of times just like really in their heads equating polyamory to cheating right like these aren't necessarily people who have like done a deep dive when they're answering the question into like what are we actually talking about and a lot of them might just be like yeah cheating is wrong i think of you know when i think polyamory i think cheating i think that's wrong so i don't approve of it which is like obviously not accurate but it is like a a relatable instinct or whatever. And I guess that has come up multiple times in the statistics so yeah. far is like, are we really sure that we're like holding steady for people knowing the difference between infidelity right. and non-monogamy? Yeah. Okay. Can I, I've, I've got another question. This yeah. is a, this is a dual, a dual a- question for Jessica and Sarah. Okay. One, que- one question for each one. Got it. Can't okay. Uh, Sarah, what percentage of people do you think say that they desire to be polyamorous? Of Americans. Hmm. General population. General population. Gen pop. And I assume it's excluding people who are currently polyamorous, but okay. that's not hmm. too many. Jessica, what percentage of people in America have a cat? <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. Hmm. All right. Do you want me to go first? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, what percentage of people in this country want to be polyamorous? Say hmm. they want to be polyamorous. I'm going to say 20%. What percentage of people have a cat? I mean, it should be 100%. That is. Here, so you're <laughs> advocating for government live. mandated cat ownership. <laughs> Everyone would be happier. A chicken in every Except pot and a cat in every. I guess people house. who are allergic to cats <laughs> force them to have cats. Well, they could just get those anti allergy uh, shots. Yeah, yeah. They're or a hairless. Strangely cute. Um, the hairless cats, not the allergy shots. Um, at 50%? <laughs> How many the number is the same. 16% of Americans say they want to be, they desire to be polyamorous, and uh, only 16% of Americans own a cat. Oh my God. so <laughs> this was Literally from a Kinsey shocked. Institute study and this, this is shocking. Uh, yeah. And this uh, researcher, Amy Moores from Chapman University and a research fellow at the Kinsey Institute uh, talks a lot about polyamory prevalence studies. And she often like referenced cross references those things to say like, oh, polyamory seems pretty re- rare. Um, but in fact, you know, hmm. it's the same. No, do you know somebody who has a cat? Mm then you probably know somebody who wow. desires to be polyamorous. That's right? so interesting. Um, what if I barely know anyone that doesn't have a cat? Those people are all polyamorous. <laughs> Wait, it's, what number did you say again, Sarah? <laughs> my, my, my head is... Sarah said yeah. 20%. I said 20%. 20%. Okay. She gets a ding okay. ding. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Good job. Um, Good job. Okay, and then... Uh, Fascinating. What, so, okay, what is interesting is cross-reference that with the ick factor. It's basically... Like there's more people who desire to be polyamorous who say they desire to be polyamorous uh, than people who said that it was okay for other people to be. So clearly yeah. these statistics are are so suspect. But people two different are like, studies. I can't have this thing that you can have, so therefore so you're wrong. gross. Yeah. Right. Which. I mean, basically, that's surprised. just at the bottom of all politics in this exactly. country right. forever and mm-hmm. ever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Amen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, and so just to, to dig down, like people who have experience with polyamory, um, 
Should, do you guys, you guys want to guess what percentage that is, or do you want to? What should I just tell you? The percentage Wait. of people who have experience with yeah. polyamory. Yeah. So just talking large. about prevalence. Ethical polyamory. Uh, I mean, I said <laughs> I have been involved in polyamory. I think anybody who said that, yeah, it's not. It's not like had I multiple have partners. It's on. like yeah, right. have been involved. But the, obviously, the polyamory term is like probably more specific. It is more specific than non-monogamy. But I'm sticking with twenty percent. You think twenty percent mm. of people have been involved in? Yeah. Uh. Have been involved. Uh, yeah. 10%. Yeah. Jessica's got it. 10.7%, uh, according to this huh. survey from 2021. 20, um, so it's not not a huge percentage, but also we're talking about the entire population. So you got to count all those uh, extremely old people who might be doing that don't mean to be ageist but it's certainly <laughs> less prevalent in uh older generations um what better moment in your life mm. to explore polyamory than mm, yeah in your golden years don't worry about yeah. Good point. pregnancy Good point. yeah um fuck with your adult children a little bit oh yeah <laughs> so fun so fun y'all all right so Coming back out of the break, I want to ask you guys uh, a couple of follow-up quiz questions about uh, the prevalence of polyamory Who if, for, for different groups. Um, so I'm going to say the name of a, like a kind of... Uh, demographic? Demographic, yeah. Um, a demographic spectrum, and you're going to tell me if you think it's a predictor of whether you would be polyamorous or not. Okay. Mm. Okay. So the first one is political affiliation. Are conservatives... Or liberals more or less likely mm. to be polyamorous? Jessica's nodding I'm yes. Saying yes. I don't Sarah's know why I'm shaking, shaking my head, head no. no. Mm. But I am shaking my head no. Yeah. You're right, Sarah. It's mm. not a predictor. <gasps> Political affiliation is not a predictor of your likelihood to be polyamorous or to desire to be polyamorous. This might have something to do with how many accidental dates with conservatives I've mm. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> All right. What Come about on. education? What about level? family values? I don't know. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Uh, what about education level? Um. Hmm. Yeah. Sarah shaking her head. Sarah no. says no. I don't think so. No. Uh. Yeah. Oh, I don't know what I think about that. Yeah. Okay. I think Sarah's smart. I'm gonna Sarah, follow her. Sarah says lead. no. And um, do you think it's exactly the same? Yeah. question uh are highly educated people more likely to be polyamorous or lower educated people oh you were asking before do i think that it's exactly there i got you Mm -hmm. Hmm. i think lower educated people are more likely to be polyamorous Uh, hmm. yeah yes Hmm. so this is one of the things that's a predictor of uh um experience with polyamory is lower education levels correlates which is interesting. interesting. I would have guessed that. Yeah, yeah no, yeah. I would have guessed the opposite. Why? Like, I mean, I think that there is a way that it can seem kind of like lifestyle or liberal elite, mm-hmm. coastal elite, snobby kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. That's why I would have thought that, like, you know, leftists or progressives are more likely to be. Mm-hmm. Polly, and I don't want to. I feel like I'm. I 
feel bad about this, but you know. <laughs> I totally understand why there's a, a kind of cultural instinct in that direction. And this is back to my like super predictable and annoying, like is capitalism baby. Right. <laughs> uh, because I think my gut instinct is the better you are at cap, the more successful you are in capitalism, the more you have to play by the rules. Mm. So you would expect that rich people would be more, uh, would be less likely to be polyamorous than poor people. Yeah, I guess with that same idea in mind. <gasps> oh, it's the same. It's the same. And hmm. you would expect that people on the coasts are more likely to be polyamorous than people in middle America. Yeah. I yeah. would expect mm-hmm. that too. <gasps> also the same. The same. Yeah. Hmm. Um, well, they have fewer distractions in the middle of the country. <laughs> and you would My expect that religious <laughs> people, people who uh, of different religions or like, you know, reporting of religion would have an impact on the prevalence of polyamory. Oh God, I don't so know. So not how that. religious yeah. you are, but which oh. religion you are, I guess, including oh. atheism as a religion hmm. or agnosticism. Including that? I mean, I... Uh, I feel like I like if you report a religion you would be less likely to be poly than if you don't report a religion I guess like would the prevalence be the same or more or less for Jews Muslims Christians Mm. oh I guess I would say like non-affiliated or atheists or agnostics like people that are not actively part of organized religions would be more likely to be polyamorous yeah that's a shocker uh, to me. The same across all religious, or you know, statistically the same across all religions. It's well. really surprising. Um, and same thing for race and ethnicity too. What about for gender? Oh, I think that's probably the same. You think men and women mm. are more uh, just yeah. as likely to? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe Who do you men think? more yeah. likely. So in terms of like actual experience with polyamory, the only predictors are men are more likely to have been and people with lower education levels are more likely to be or have experience with polyamory. And all Hmm. of those other factors, it's roughly equal. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So all the other factors being religion, geography, uh, race, ethnicity, wealth, income, yeah. Education levels. Well, so, not education levels. Oh, not, right. Not education levels. Okay. So the only things that are predictors are if you're a man and if you have a lower level of education. Yep. What do you all care to freely speculate? I mean, obviously we're not going to get to the bottom of why that is, but mm. I am really curious how you might, what direction you might speculate in. Yeah. I mean, this is definitely like a big myth for me. I had assumed that you could just kind of draw a picture, a demographic picture of a person who was polyamorous or who was likely to be polyamorous mm-hmm. and they would be like us like yeah. mm-hmm. highly educated people it's also though but i think this also boils down to like partly your uh assumption that more other people are just like you like their their mm. parallel comparative like the cat thing their comparative statistical rate for uh people who have experience with polyamory um is uh people who have graduate degrees only 10 percent of people in the united states have graduate degrees Wow. Well. So they're obviously wow. not the same 10% as are polyamorous. But like, you know, mm. I would just, if you asked me that, I would say 25% mm. because all three of the people sitting at this table have graduated. Right. Degrees, right. Yeah. 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 Very interesting. I always come back to, this is me like freely speculating and it's, mm. doesn't, it's not all going to hang together, but it's just, is it like a feeling I have? <laughs> um, I always feel like 
the nuclear family and the kind of like accessibility of it and the myth of it and like how powerful that is has something to do with your relationship to polyamory. Mm -hmm. But Hmm. I don't know how that helps us here. Yeah. You know, that's probably why I would have said uh, folks who are queer, I would say, are who I think of as being like the demographic predictor for polyamory Mm -hmm. in part Mm -hmm. because the traditional nuclear family is already not available to them in the same way. And so they're already kind of like in a place where they get to make up relationships as they want to and need to. Um, And I guess that's like where my mind goes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This survey found uh, their rates of desire to be involved in polyamory or like uh, to experience. Yeah. Desire to be polyamorous was higher for sexual minorities um, and for younger adults Mm -hmm. versus older adults. But I don't know if it was actually like manifest Mm -hmm. as such. Yeah. Um, and I wonder, there's like other things I, I'm always thinking about, like the kind of economics of behavior. And so mm-hmm. like men being polyamorous or non-monogamous, that makes me think about like uh, working class men who travel for work. Right. right? Like, yeah, yeah. So men who are in seasonal work or transportation mm-hmm. or, you know, right. something where they're not at home all the time. Yeah. there And there probably is like a lot of, I mean, this is where the semantics mm-hmm. come in too, but there's a lot, of, probably a lot of cultural presentations of polyamory that are not the ones that we would think of. Mm-hmm. Like, for mm-hmm. instance, I know Agreed. it's like, uh, there's definitely like a trope of like somebody who's like working in this country and has a family in another country. Mm-hmm. Like it's very mm-hmm. frequent, especially for men that they would have like kind of, you know, have relationships here and a family back home that they're supporting with their mm-hmm. right? Or I'm even sure just like things like, like that. We, you and I were watching a dumb show about like rock and roll stars or whatever. And like, there's the... <laughs> and there's like at one point that sort of cliche moment where the the primary partner lady's like what happens on tour stays on tour Mm, like do what you gotta do but don't fall in love you know like there Uh are kind of she bursts in on him in a van with groupies Mm. were you watching almost famous it's like almost famous (laughs) like show not a good show um but you know so there are and like similarly like with men who like or truck drivers or like work right. in mm-hmm. seasonal industries, you know, this idea that everybody's like sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. They probably have a girlfriend in another right. state kind mm-hmm. of stuff. And mm-hmm. I, I wonder how much that informs yeah. us. Yeah. And I mean, I think we've heard a few examples on this podcast of couples where, or maybe there's only one that's coming to mind, but a couple where like only the man was poly, like they were poly, but it was really only the man who was actively practicing, actively yeah, that's true. having right. other partners. And I think mm-hmm. there's obviously the, you know, pervasive idea that, you know, men's sex drives are just like these things that we have to sort of like cater to cater to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I could imagine that that's a factor here. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. There's so much more information and context I want about all of this, but it mm. is really uh, pretty fascinating how wrong I was. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. I'm always fascinated mm-hmm. by how wrong you are. <laughs> 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 uh, no, yeah, I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was surprised by that too. I don't really know exactly what to make of the idea that like it's consistent across all of those categories, other than to say like there are just like a lot of different presentations of what polyamory might look like. And, you know, this is maybe a theme that's emerging for me is that we, there's more going on in this culture and in this country regarding polyamory, whether it's like people's 
internal thoughts about it or their actual practices that we don't have access to mm-hmm. yeah. and that there are no yeah. representations of. Yeah. And so it's a lot of guesswork yeah. uh, because yeah. Yeah. I do suspect that there's more of it happening than we think or realize, more people who are mm-hmm. interested in mm-hmm. it than we think or realize, um, and more practices of it that yeah. look like really different than maybe the kind of like... Um, coastal elite queer Instagram culture right. of it. Right. Yeah. Which does like compel me to like be more, uh, more argumentative, like argue more for acceptance of it mm-hmm. as like, uh, you know, there's always this thing about like, is it an identity like similar to queerness or something like that? Or is it more of a practice? And like, I guess whether regardless of what you think, it's like clearly not just like uh, a trend. Mm-hmm. Right amongst a certain group of people, like there Absolutely may be trends right. towards polyamory amongst certain groups of people, but all told, taking the entire population of this country, like is just kind of showing up everywhere in different ways. Honestly, if I had like a, if I had like a wish that I could just grant that was totally absurd, but it was like the wish of my heart as like a queer polyamorous therapist person, uh, it would be that everyone just had to come forth and talk about like the infidelities that they've experienced, Mm -hmm. whether they Mm -hmm. like experienced them as the person who committed the infidelity or not, that we had to talk about like the off script relationships that we've had, that there was like some way that we could just like all get it out on the same day, like mutually assured destruction. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, there's we all, like, like write it on a piece of paper, put yeah. it in an envelope, and then like trade envelopes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Everybody trades envelopes because I just know, like in my heart of hearts, I just know that all of us actually have way more in common when it comes to standard deviation right. <laughs> um, than we accept or talk about yeah. or think about or could ever be captured in one of these surveys. Yeah. And I just dream of what it would feel like for us to be on the other side of that day, mm-hmm. you know, and like how good I think it would actually feel. Yeah. Maybe that's naive, but you want to go? Oh that. yeah. Mm-hmm. Give us another one, Sarah. Okay. Let's Nobody's see. asked me any questions yet. I'll oh. ask you some. Oh yeah. Hmm. <laughs> Oh, gosh, there's so many good ones. Um, okay, you, you want one, Alex? Yeah. And I'm going to go over to this other section. 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 <laughs> uh, well, edit that out. Okay. <laughs> uh, this one, just professionally interested. Uh To set this up, this comes from Shrimp Teeth. So all of the stats that I'm talking about in today's episode come from Shrimp Teeth. Uh, They run like a resource coaching practice around non-monogamy polyamory. I'm a big fan. I follow them on Instagram, and they were the ones who conducted all of these surveys. In this one, Shrimp Teeth is asking people who identify as women about their experience with men. People who identify as men. So this is asking women about their experience with men in polyamorous relationships. And the question is, ladies, (laughs) is he in therapy? (laughs) Okay. Sorry. Oh, and these are poly people. These are poly people. Or, yeah, okay. And we're asking women who are in polyamorous relationships with men, ladies, what what percentage say the man's in therapy? Mm -hmm. What percentage? I would go with uh, a hot a hot fifty, half. 
a hot 50. He says half. Half. Uh, it would Jess? be hot. <laughs> 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 These are poly men. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, they're poly men, so I'm going to say, you know, significantly better than the gen pop and go with 15. Oh. <laughs> And Uh so it's somewhere in between there. Uh, (laughs) AKA two sad trombones. (laughs) Two sad trombones. Somewhere in between fifty and fifteen. And I'm trying to actually like quickly parse out the numbers, so I'm just gonna read them out here. Uh and we can all do it together transparently. Ladies, is he in therapy? Uh 23% 23% say, I am, he needs to be too. Uh-huh. <laughs> 17% said, yes, but I had to push. Okay. 26% said, yes, he prioritizes his growth. Okay. And 33% said, say, no, he refuses. So mm. if I'm adding those up, the yes is 26 plus 17, which yeah. is 42, 40. right? 43. 43%. So that, yeah. That's actually that's pretty close. close. I'm going to give you a close. ding. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, 43% of... But these some were, of them were coerced. But, but 17%, right. it was... And I have heard this before. This is probably an entire episode, y'all. Yeah. Um, but women who will not date polyamorous yeah, men unless they're in therapy, mm-hmm. which is yeah. absolutely a trend. And I can... I have never like had that as an ultimatum. And I have also not dated a man polyamorous man who wasn't in therapy in probably mm. two years mm. yeah mm-hmm. well i could see why you yeah. wouldn't but what do we make of this i'd be so curious to know what the standard population answer yeah. to this is but i think it's mm. very low would oh. be my guess by comparison yeah i mean it's probably yeah like it's so the 33 percent said he refuses yeah so yeah it's got to be like much higher percentage of the the general population would refuse, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, God, it's. Yeah. I mean, there's access issues to talk about too. Absolutely, sure. and, this is, yeah. and cultural. Yeah. And I think, and I do think people, it's getting better. You yeah. know, like oh, um, I just looked it? up the statistic on how many men in the general population are, are in, in therapy. Therapy. Now that's my question. What percentage, y'all? Twelve. Five. <laughs> Spot on, Alex. Oh, oh really? Twelve percent, twelve point one percent, as of oh. twenty twenty one. In uh, yeah, twenty twenty one. I do think I suspect us. it's like oh god, twelve though. Um, I suspect that like pandemic might have like increased mm, numbers mm-hmm. a little bit. I, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm absolutely sure. You're practically giving and away I, therapy. You know, now I'm like. <laughs> Sorry that I'm so <laughs> cynical and salty about this, but I really like, yeah. um, you know, my anecdotal evidence of the dating pool. I don't think I ever dated a man who was in therapy unless I made him go to therapy. Yeah. And okay. I'm sick of making men go to therapy and I'm mad about it. Mm. So. <laughs> so the myth here would probably be uh, that all polyamorous men are. Sensitive, sensitive guys who are deep in their 
internal explorations uh, and are in therapy. Yeah, I would say yeah. it's it's complicated. Yeah. Like what I'm finding out here uh, in real time <laughs> is that. <laughs> The percentage is higher among polyamorous men. I mean, we are, these are not like perfectly clean statistics, but if we're just like looking at these numbers and I'm sure that it would bear out that mm -hmm. polyamorous men are more likely to be in therapy, um, or maybe it's just those who are in relationships with women who follow shrimp teeth. I'm not sure. Right. <laughs> you know, that like, we have to kind of acknowledge that. Yeah. Um, and also that's like more our demographic, our demographic. Exactly. Yeah, sure. Exactly. Uh, and also, no, not all of them are. And yeah. still the numbers are going to be lower. And I would, I would stake my graduate degree on this, mm. uh, <laughs> lower among men than women in all categories. Mm -hmm. mm. Oh yeah. 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 Um, okay. You guys want to move on to STIs? Yeah. All Ooh. right. Do it. <laughs> all right. Jessica, mm -hmm. non-monogamous people. More likely to have get STIs, have STIs than monogamous people, mm. uh, or the same. Oh, I think the same. I think less. I mean, like because uh, having listened to every episode but we're of this podcast, all sorts of people. Yeah, and you are n telling the truth about it to yourself and your partners. <laughs> Unlike many monogamous people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. This was from that Kinsey study also. Uh, poly people are exactly the same prevalence of STI uh, safety as, or of STIs as monogamous people. Um, let me see. There's like a little section about it. It's worth saying that one of the statistics that I had here was how often do you get tested? This is again mm. from Shrimp Teeth, so we're asking polyamorous oh, yeah, people. Yeah. Okay, follow up. Yeah, yeah. follow up. Um, Interesting. And... I'm curious, what percentage would you say of these folks said we get tested routinely every six months-ish? Mm. And this is self-reporting. Self-reporting polyamorous people. anonymous public yeah. Yeah. forum. Right. So Very it's anonymous, but uh, <laughs> still, people are lying. Um, <laughs> what percentage say what? That we get tested every six months-ish or routinely. Mm -hmm. I would say like about half of people would probably say that. Yeah, I mean, I think I half most. <laughs> yep, fifty-five percent. Mm. What are the other options? Twenty-four uh, percent said they get tested before sleeping with someone new. Nineteen uh, percent said they get tested only if it seems necessary. Three percent said testing. I can't remember the last time. Hmm. So fifty-five percent said routinely or every six months. Bullshit. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, there wasn't an option for I tell my. I tell a new partner. <laughs> I don't think that many people are probably outright lying about it, but more than three percent of people are like not probably doing it. Mm -hmm. you know? um, but probably just skip that question. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. So you're calling bullshit on that three percent number? Yeah, yeah. I, that just seems low to me for okay. the, a number of mm. people who are yeah. like just being kind of chaotic or whatever and not. And also, like, it's hard. It's, I mean, I don't want to say it's hard to get tested, yeah. but it's not like easy. Uh, you know, access to. I mean, same thing for therapy, right? All of mm -hmm. these are like basic fundamental healthcare things that are not as accessible as they should be. And right? I appreciate the comparison, like the back back to back comparison of therapy and STI testing, because mm -hmm. I think in both cases, you're talking about a population where those activities are higher, or at least according to the statistics that we're looking at, they're higher because these are people who 
are in non-traditional relationships where they're going to be more aware of their dynamics, their behavior. They're going to be talking about it more kind of by definition. Mm -hmm. Um, And so presumably seeking support or resources accordingly. Yeah. Well, and I think it's funny with STI testing, like my personal experience has been like the way you sort of like people talk about it or you talk about it with a partner is like, yeah, I've been tested. I'm good. And the experience I've had when I go to the doctor and say like, can I get tested? Is they're like, well, do you think you have gonorrhea? And I'm like, well, no, like, yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I don't very, understand. Yeah. Like what I are the magic words back on that? You uh-huh. know? Yeah. Yeah. And they want to know, they always want to know some juicy they Juicy sure do. Yeah. I mean, the the way they don't push back, or you don't get pushed back, the way you don't get pushed back mm. is by telling them that you and your husband are non-monogamous. Yeah. Well, yeah. Did you that get, really, did it change eye. that experience? Definitely. Yeah. They're just and like, ew, well, yeah, we'll test you for everything. Weirdly, <laughs> you know, I don't know what this, well, maybe I do know what this says, but weirdly, there'll always be like, oh, well, you know, you're reporting your behavior and you haven't had sex with any men mm. without condoms and you have sex with women right mm. um except for your husband you have i have sex with my husband without condoms and right. then they're like let's get you tested because he's out there sleeping with other people oh, you know dang. like it feels like that's actually the moment mm. when they're like okay you're at risk if mm. he if he might be stepping out on you yeah i mean we are that's by definition both stepping out on each right. other yeah you know so it's, it's not of, the stepping out it's the well do they it's the, they don't believe that those bastards don't believe that I'm actually <laughs> I, using condoms. Right. No. I'm sure that's kind of what it is because I'm sure it's pretty common. Um, yeah. Yeah. So this says, uh, although those engaged in polyamory have more sexual partners, research shows that they practice safer sex strategies and report similar rates of contracting STIs as those engaged in monogamy. So like non-monogamy, more partners, higher risk, but better practices. Um, and so it pretty much evens out. Mm-hmm. Right. So interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good job. But it's like a lot higher risk, really. Like if you imagine that, you know, the difference. Uh, so I guess that uh, just as an endorsement of like how good of a job people are doing of protecting themselves. Like if the rates of STIs among non- non-monogamous people is the same as the rates among yeah. nominally monogamous people, like, mm. you know, that means we're doing a good job of protecting ourselves. Yeah. Good and job. Myself in yeah. The and ourselves mm-hmm. and our partners. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. I have another Sex one. Six. Six. Cut that out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Jessica's definitely not going to cut no. out any of the stuff that we have to cut out. Every time you episode. say cut that out, I'm like, oh, that's so cute. I'm going to find and replace. <laughs> Sex. <laughs> okay. This one, I'm going to ask you this, Jessica. Okay. This is, all, again, shrimp tea. The question is, be honest. Are you having as much sex as you expected when you first decided to open up your relationship? Hmm. Hmm. So should I give you the categories and then you tell me which one you think is the winner? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, more. I'm drowning in body fluids. Mm. Yes. It's exactly what I'd hoped. <laughs> no. More processing feels than sexy play. Mm-hmm. No. Only my pals seem to get any peach emoji. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that like my prediction in the past or like before I had really dived into learning about this lifestyle I might have been like I was all like sex parties that's clearly what this is all about everybody's just fucking all the time um having spent 
two years with you guys. Oh God, this is going to be making this podcast. <laughs> no, but I have learned that like, there is definitely some fun sex that sounds like it's happening, but I think there's also a lot of processing. So I feel like the third one spoke to me. That's the one that you heard. Yeah, I feel like that was that was the thing. And. Mm-hmm. Processing. More processing feels than sexy play. Do you want to guess what percentage of respondents said that? I'm gonna now I'm passing this over to you, Alex. What percentage of respondents said 47. that? Forty seven. I just always guess fifty percent, I guess. Fifty five percent. Wow. I was shocked by that one. I was like, mm, okay, do you feel yeah. a little less alone? Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, I don't know. It doesn't so really the, feel specific to Polly. Like, it's also just like, this is no. where I feel Well, like, and it's right? talking about the idea, what you thought was going to be happening yeah. versus what was actually yeah. happening, right? Yeah. And yeah. in the fantasy, it's just, yeah. And this is such a perfect uh, counterpoint to what we were talking about earlier with the eternal FOMO of everybody having better sex right. than you and more sex mm-hmm. and, like, all of the, you know, cinematic sex and looking at this that, you know... People who reported, I'm having more sex than I expected, 16%. 18% said, yes, it's what I'd hoped for. 11% said, no, it seems like only my pals seem to get any mm. booty. Mm. And then no more processing feels than sexy play, 55%. But I think to your point, <laughs> Jessica, this is humanity, y'all. Right. I, I really do think that this is just what it feels like to be a human being. Right. Yeah. Um, that much of life is about like processing your experiences, interpersonal dynamics, like the challenging emotions that arise around intimacy. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And some of it is about like really peak experiences. But what would life be if it was all peak experiences? How boring. Uh, right. Yeah. That is a good. The trade off yeah. for every peak experience is 55% <laughs> of processing. A lot. Right. Yeah. I think it's just a good reminder to like not have whatever, I don't know if it counts as higher expectations for yourself or high expectations for like what it should look like. You know, you're not alone if it is not uh, a lot of fun time party sex. And also fun time party sex uh, is great, but I would say that is one facet of what is great about being in sexually intimate, emotionally intimate relationships and community with people. Like, yeah, you want that to be a part of it. But if that was all of it, I don't know. Maybe that'd be what some boring. people are in for. I think it'd be yeah. boring. Yeah. Fantasy yeah. as well. Yeah. Okay. I've got one. Uh, this was from a study in the journal Sexologies. Ooh. Shout out to that being the coolest <laughs> academic journal name ever. Sexologies. Sexologies, yeah. Oh, wow. I'm going to like okay. order a subscription That's to Sexologies. So much better uh, than. I really, It'll I, just be in my little box in the admin <laughs> office at, at work. I really hope everyone is imagining you, picturing you reading these studies, like in elbow patches mm-hmm. with a bubble pipe, and there's like glasses. glasses in your office with like a bookshelf behind you. Alex, would you tell us where you were reading these studies? Well, on the internet in our child's bedroom. <laughs> right, yeah. Okay, good point. Good point. I was on a little couch with some... Uh, Squishmallows? Stuffies. Squishmallows, yeah. <laughs> By my side. That's where I like to read my sexologies. Um, so sexologies explored... There's no numbers for this, but they just explored, like, kind of tried to, like, 
essentially like do an academic brainstorm of the reasons that people engage in polyamory. Hmm. So I want you guys to try and think of different reasons that people might uh, hmm. engage in polyamory, whether either things that they'd state or kind of things that just would sort of be hmm. there as as possible different reasons. Okay. Um, and, and I guess it's kind of coming off the last question where we're like talking about sex, right? And these are the actual reasons or these are the reasons that people speculate are the reasons? Like, this is what poly people say about themselves? No, it's not based no. on surveys. Uh, okay. I think it's based on kind of like, uh, like, yeah, I don't, I don't really understand the methodology, to be honest. Um, okay. I think that it was things that had been referenced in different other journal articles and stuff like that. Mm. Um, okay. So just, to, you want us to just like kind of... Reasons for polyamory. Yeah. Say some stuff. Okay. Yeah. And I'll tell you. Ba- failing sex life. Mm-hmm. So there's one that's fulfillment of needs not met in a monogamous relationship. So okay. those needs could be sexual. They could be otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. What about like you can get uh, there's, there's eight listed here. like traveling for work, you know, work that long distance, long distance. There you go. Geographic separation. Hmm. Uh, what about I, mean, I feel like that could be one, but it's not listed here. Okay. Like, Interesting. Um, yeah, I think maybe this is more like think more in the lifestyle. Like, why would I decide mm. that I want to be polyamorous? And, oh, oh, like I mean, that's like kink, right? Yeah, kink. So, um, yeah, I could feel. I feel like this is kind. That's kind of related to that. Could be fulfillment of needs not met in a monogamous relationship. Oh, right. Um, but there's also one that is desire for sexual diversity. Mm. So standard we've got, deviation. We've the, like kind of sex ones. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. And queerness, I guess, would fall into... That's another one. Okay. Exploration okay. of minority okay. identities. Got it. Sexual uh-huh. fluidity and bisexuality. Okay, okay. What else you got? I would say, I mean, I don't feel like... Maybe this is like a, a weird one to say, but it comes to mind because I experience it a lot and uh, it's my experience too. Getting married young. Mm. Mm, like mm. I got married young... Yeah, this would do better as a family feud. Survey suit? Yeah. <laughs> um, let's see, getting married young. Okay, I'm going to give you that one. Uh, there is one that is uh, personal growth and autonomy. Yeah. Hmm. And I think that's mm-hmm. kind of what you're talking yeah, about there, yeah. right? Like uh, wanting to establish your own identity, like, individual identity outside of like, yeah. Marriage, religion, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Yeah value systems uh-huh. that you were kind of like raised in, but aren't yours. Things like yeah. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like that. Wow. So how many are left that we haven't gotten? One, two, three, four. There are four left. You've gotten half. Four yeah. that we haven't gotten. Interesting. And I feel, I say like a few of them are like discernibly different than anything that you've, uh, else you've said. Mm. Uh, boredom, fun slash fun. Hmm. Boredom slash fun. You know, um, one of those, just like, I was bored in my life, or I was looking to have some more fun. Yeah. yeah. Spice things up. No, I don't really have that here. Um, Those are some high-minded wow. answers. No, they are very high-minded. <laughs> I mean, there's one that is, uh, this is the one that I think would feel like a similar, identity development. Uh, it says identity development and polyamory. I don't really know what the polyamory yeah. means. I mean, that's what we're talking about. Um, but uh, that's kind of overlapping with probably sexual identity. Yeah. I feel like it might be separate um, we've but we've maybe covered that yeah, between covered between that. the like getting married young mm-hmm. exploring queerness like that's identity Autonomy, development i yes. get that yeah 
So there's stuff beyond that yep. that we haven't come up with. Boy, I don't want to say I'm stumped, but... Yeah, if you want to give up, I can tell you the rest, or you can... Yeah. I think I'm stumped. Yeah. yeah. Give, give us one, and then let's see yeah. if it unlocks some other chamber. Or give us a hint or okay. something. Uh, or a hint. <laughs> number four, and then again, they're not ranked, but let's just say number four, because it sounds cool. Uh, number four, expression of political values political values. Yeah. Dang, what the hell are they talking about? I guess like people are... Um, like I mean, the Democrats? And- <laughs> yeah, I, I'm like so curious what they mean by political values okay, in that. I find this section. Huh. I mean, I love that. Yeah. I think. I mean... I guess it depends. I feel but- like... Yeah, right? <laughs> talking about like polygamy right (laughs) polyamory enables individuals to express their autonomy and in some non-monogamous individuals it is related to the expression of political values and rebellious values as part of a struggle against social Mm. conventions fuck yeah like counterculture yeah yeah political values that guide individuals are related to general human values uh okay Okay, some members of polyamorous communities practice non-monogamy as a means of expressing feminist ideological positions uh identified political lesbianism, quote-unquote, and women who choose to live with a woman not primarily because they are lesbians, but because they are feminists, first of all, and so it is quite natural for them to become lesbians. What year was what this survey done in? <laughs> what year is it? Well, that's referencing a 2000... This is like a, a compilation of <laughs> okay. different things. That's from 2003. Yeah. I was um, like, that feels dated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I so, okay, that goes on to say, like, Polyamory, polyamory, this is like, I think, ethical slut stuff, I think. Like, polyamory oh, began to be discussed totally. in the 1990s, facilitated by several waves of feminism, heteronormativity, and at one point, monogamy. Monogamy as a normative form of male dominance through the institution mm. of marriage mm. began to be questioned. And that's from a, in the 90s. Yeah, yeah. okay. This is, may I, can I just like get in here with something? Uh-huh. Uh, I definitely get the sense that there is like a wave of non monogamy and polyamory where like a lot of that language. Uh, is present mm-hmm. from like late nineties, early two thousands. That to me, if not explicitly, implicitly, uh, suggests that men are being non-monogamous in an unethical way. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And now let's give women access to the, and or like change the paradigm mm-hmm. so that that's no longer. Uh, it's no longer that women are kind of like at home with the kids while men are stepping out, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. I just kind of like throw that out there because I feel like. That is relevant, important, and kind of of a moment. Yeah. Yeah. Feminist critiques of monogamy emphasize the implications of men's ownership of women, institutionalization of rape and domestic violence against women, the maintenance of patriarchy in the domestic sphere. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. it's kind of like part of a larger, uh, you know, dismantling of those sort of like the, the patriarchal oppression inherent in marriage and monogamy and and that that, kind of assumes in a lot of that language that relationships between men and women are inherently kind of um exploitative right as they exist yeah and i mean i would say that 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 this like that persists Mm -hmm. right because Mm -hmm. like think about how many people you see on dating apps and stuff like that like dealing with like one penis policy stuff. Yeah. Like, there are a lot of, like, men who are out there being like, I want to be non-monogamous, yes. but I don't want you to be, right? And there is a lot of, there are a lot of people, to Jessica's point, who are practicing a kind of non-monogamy where, like, the man is a lot more active in the mm-hmm. non-monogamy, right. to mm-hmm. be sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, remaining ones. Uh, does that open any other, any other guesses or ideas? I feel like there's one more kind of big one here that... Um, 
Hmm. I'm dying to know. Yeah, me too. Just uh, so it on us. Number six was the need to belong to a community. Oh, shit. Community mm. building. Um, individuals wow. join or form communities in order to meet people who share the same values and the same attitude to forming relationships. Uh, because polyamorous individuals differ from monogamous individuals in their attitude toward forming relationships, they may have an amplified need to form their own community in which they can experience feelings of belongings. So I feel like that's kind of actually yeah. the reverse. Um, I May I say that there's something about the wording of the survey that makes me feel like it wasn't written for like a general population mm, to yeah. respond or like it's written for a polyamorous, like a subset of the polyamorous community almost. Hmm. Yeah. Is that, is, I mean, it is in sexology. Yeah, I guess it's uh, in right, sexology. Right, yeah, right. good point. <laughs> the, so the audience is people who study sex. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. that makes and sense. And so okay. I think they're trying to get yeah, more yeah, to yeah, like yeah. the deeper, like sociological. It's not yeah. the things that people would say. Right. It's like the deeper sociological or psychological elements. And then the last one is psychodynamic reasons where they talk a whole bunch about like uh, um, attachment. Yeah, and dismantling mm. codependency. Mm. I do think that that is like increasingly being identified as one of the reasons why people are drawn to non-monogamy hmm. as a way of um, identifying and dismantling codependent dynamics. Mm-hmm. That's, That's so interesting. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Uh, that is like very uh, hopeful and mm-hmm. yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah. A lot of more reasons than you would have come up with mm-hmm. off the top of your head. Yeah. And there's like... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> then we did come up yeah. with them at the top of our heads. Well, and I feel like a lot of them are <laughs> like kind of... Jessica's just like, traveling for work. <laughs> no, but well... I do, like, in real life, I think it's very common that couples might decide, well, okay, I have to go live across the country from grad yeah, school, or yeah. they will have, like, a conference rule or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, that yeah. is... Oh, yeah, that was, like, I feel like yeah. they... Yeah, monogamish. succession there you a go. tiny bit. When, in the episode last night... Spoiler, I haven't watched it yet. No, it's not a spoiler. <laughs> okay. Connor's just like talking about how he wants to go to Slovenia and him and Willa are going to like live apart. They don't like talk about them mm. sleeping with other people, but they're totally like giving a nod to like, right, it'll be better for our marriage to like be apart. Mm-hmm. Spice mm. things up. I think yeah. they actually use the term spice things, spice yeah. things mm-hmm. up. So yeah. Interesting. <laughs> there you go. There's your media representation Perfect. that you're well, so That's all I get. 15 seconds. <laughs> 15 seconds of a veiled comment. Yeah. Um, anything else? You got another one? I, I got actually, one more, but we can... I kind of like ending on that note, except cool. what I'm curious, what is the other one that you had? Uh, okay, I got one more that is about jealousy. Uh, oh, yeah. Hook it up. Non-monogamous people more likely to report issues of jealousy than monogamous ones? This is a true or false? No. Less likely. False. False. What's false? Uh, well, okay, this is interesting. We have data. From this pod, like I think about you guys and I think about Madeline and Zach sitting here on this podcast last time, and you would like your intercouple experiences are like exactly the opposite of each other. Mm, that's right. exactly the oh, in not, terms of you know, no, 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 sorry, just like we talked a lot about how they didn't have any jealousy, right? And I'm not saying that you guys are super jealous, but you have oh, struggled with that. Yeah. So right? I do feel like this is where definitions of jealousy are helpful Mm -hmm. because I think that all couples struggle with that. And I think it's like, are you talking about sexual jealousy, Mm. romantic jealousy, Mm. time jealousy, interest jealousy? Like I, I guess I am personally (laughs) uh, invested in this idea that we can like depathologize jealousy and recognize that it's like a really normal feeling to have in any and all of your relationships. Mm. And one that you can like name 
identify, move through, get support in, uh, like any other you might yeah. experience. Yeah. Okay. So I guess maybe the question, if you think about the question, the survey question being like, is jealousy an issue in your relationship? Or is jealousy an issue in your relationship? I don't know if this is exactly what the question was, but imagine they asking that to non-monogamous people and to monogamous people. Uh, is it more likely that monogamous people would say jealousy is an issue in their relationship or more likely that non-monogamous people would say jealousy is an issue in their relationship? Mm. Mm. It's a trick question. No. <laughs> I mean, I think like it seems like it would be in a non-monogamous relationship because your partner is sleeping with other people. But I bet I'm going to get a sad trombone. What do you think, Sarah? I mean, I, I think just from my experience working with couples as a therapist and also just anecdotally in my life and in my own family. Yeah. Fuck no. Like, monogamous people <laughs> are struggle with jealousy all over the fucking place. Yeah. Like... Whether it's that, well, it can be, I don't know if funny is the right word, but it's like a monogamous couple can have a crazy ass fight about like, you yeah. know, someone liking an ex-girlfriend's fucking Instagram post. Right. right. That's fucking jealousy. Yeah. And maybe a non-monogamous couple is going to be like, oh man, you're going to go away on a romantic getaway for three nights to a place <laughs> I wanted to go to and have beautiful sex in the woods with someone else. Fuck off. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So, yeah you can't is... use the satin sheets this weekend. <laughs> right. Is satin sheets are in the wash because you had a sex party on them? And I wasn't there. Yeah, it's about the same. Uh, totally, uh, is, I uh, totally it's agree. the same. Amy Moore's, oh, it's yeah, the I feel same. Like we should try to get Amy Moore's on the podcast because yeah. she's done a lot of cool Let's research. Let's do it. Um, so, uh, it's about the same. Uh, so, this is kind of interesting. Research conducted using twin studies, uh, just don't worry about that. Um, they're not <laughs> twins, I don't think. So sexy identical twins <laughs> completed a study. Um, no, it suggests that the propensity for romantic and sexual jealousy is somewhat heritable, not inherited, but heritable, indicating that a person level factor independent of any relationship, indicating a person mm. level factor independent of any relationship arrangement. So basically right. I'm going to be, je- if I'm je- have a propensity for jealousy, I'm going to be jealous in, a monogamous race relationship and I'm going to be jealous in a non-monogamous relationship. Right. And if I don't, then I'm going to be the same in different relationship presentations as well. Well, yeah. and I would love to just offer up a personal anecdote and experiential arc here that mm. I, is very meaningful to me and like kind of hard to talk about. But prior to us becoming non-monogamous, I was absolutely adamant that I was not a jealous person. Mm. Like mm. I really had this kind of like fixed identity that I didn't go in for that. And I think that had something to do with my own experience in my family and a lot of like the women in my family just being really like jealous and being stepped out on a lot and like really worried and hypervigilant about like male sexual behavior. And I just wanted to be like, no, mm -mm, I don't think about that. I don't do that. I can't, I can't like, it just Mm. seemed so, like this kind of vulnerability that I, I couldn't even like begin to explore. When you and I became non-monogamous, it was like a fucking jealousy nuclear bomb went off. <laughs> and, and maybe it was before that. I mean, yeah. like we've talked about this on the podcast. Like there was the experience of like emotional infidelity and that like began a much bigger conversation that resulted a couple of years later in us. Mm-hmm. opening up but I would think of that kind of like t- two to three year period as like the jealousy nuclear bomb mm-hmm. going off where mm-hmm. 
all of the times that I was like, absolutely not. I don't experience this emotion. I can't go there. It's like had been suppressed. Right. <laughs> and yeah. then it was just like everywhere mm. all the time. Um, it was a really scary experience for me. And I think in ways I'm still like kind of working through what I've learned about myself in the, the process of really identifying that I do struggle with jealousy and I do struggle with codependency and like uh, struggling with that and naming it is actually hmm. an example of like strength and resilience mm. uh, and being really inflexible and being like, no, I don't, I don't mm. do that um, was me being afraid. But I guess I just say that because I think about jealousy a lot and about my own experience with it and how I self-reported. Mm. Yeah, that's a, thank you for sharing that. I think it's, that's a pretty, I think this is a complicated one that can't really be captured very well in a, in a study because like yeah. then mm. that makes me think about like there were definitely periods of our relationship where I felt intense jealousy and like I think what changed was more like, it's more like situational which would mm. kind of fly in the face of this thing that we just said, that it, like, follows a person no matter what kind of relationships mm. they're in. Like, that mm -hmm. might be true for some people, but um, it really seems like, like, does your relationship feel secure or insecure? And we probably try to, like, boil that down a lot in individualist mm. psychology to, you know, attachment style and stuff like that. But there's a lot of other factors that aren't just who you are that are, like, you know, is your relationship threatened? Like there, are, like you were just referencing, there are compelling, rational reasons to feel insecure and jealous in a relationship. Like when it's there's been infidelity committed, or like right. the relationship is threatened by, or when you maybe are like socioeconomically, politically, and culturally less, more vulnerable or less mm -hmm. powerful. Like when you have a woman with really young children. Mm -hmm. um, I also think jealousy is such a fascinating term, and I think we should do a big episode about this and get some people yeah. to talk about it mm -hmm. because I, I find it kind of flat in the way we think about mm -hmm. it. I would argue that I feel more stable in my relationships because I am in relationship to my own jealousy. Right. Mm. Right. And because mm. I can like, I'm aware of it. I can talk about it. I can like sort of discern between what pieces of it are for me to kind of own and process elsewhere and what pieces of it might be for me to take to a partner that actually ultimately has made me feel more stable in my relationships. But like in a survey response, it would probably look like me reporting more jealousy now since we've been non-monogamous than prior. Right. Yeah. So, right. you yeah. know, like there's a, there's a lot here. It's a real, um, it's kind of a figure eight for me or yeah. something. And how much it impacts you would probably be determined by like how much time and effort you'd spent like learning to understand and process yeah. jealousy and like yeah so I love this because the myth buster is that there's any demographic of people that experience jealousy more right. in terms of like monogamous and non-monogamous mm -hmm. I love busting that myth yeah mm -hmm. um, and I hear in this answer in our discussion of it that there's something kind of unsatisfying about how we define jealousy mm -hmm. that deserves more exploration yeah yeah yeah, I loved what you said about the different sort of types of jealousy that might exist. And I think this is a whole new episode and uh. I know what we can call it. Hey, jealousy. <gasps> <laughs> All right. Cliffhanger okay. for season we'll be, three. We'll be back. <laughs>
be spending the next few months trying to license Gin Blossom Song. That's right. <laughs> um, okay, well, that is the end of our Polyamory Mythbusters episode and the end of season two of Mistakes Were Made. Thank you so much for listening. We're going to go on a break for, I don't know, a couple months or something like that. Yeah, summer break. Um, summer break. Uh, and, but if you want to follow what we're doing over the summer, um, you can check out Sarah's therapy and writing website. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you we'll want. put that in the show notes. Yep. Um, and you can check out Bloodstar, the music project that we've been working on. Um, and you can listen to Jessica's day job is producing Making Contact, a fabulous show on not national public radio but it's on many npr stations and available as a podcast hit us with that great new uh uh slogan that you all came up with mission statement Ooh, yeah okay um audio storytelling for a more just world yeah it's good stuff that sounds amazing uh okay so that's making contact and um we'll be back in a few months with more episodes uh Follow us on Instagram in the meantime. If we get some more followers, then we'll uh, post some content during the break, right? Maybe we'll do some more little, little uh, graphics about stuff we've been thinking about, um, yeah. reference the things we've been reading, um, Polls, cute questions. pictures of us, yeah. uh, our cat, mm-hmm. maybe cat pictures, polls. Yeah. And I'd love to hear from you all about what you'd like to hear about in season three. Uh, so... Get out there, get on the dating apps, go have some cute dates, make some mistakes, and tell us what you want to talk about come fall. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. And hey, thanks, Jessica and Alex, for another great season. This was really fun, and I love you both. Love you guys. Love you too. Bye. (laughs)